If you take out your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis, we'll be reading uh, 27 verses in in Genesis this morning, and then we're going to pray. And I did not pray for the Ati people. We're going to do that now. Um, And uh, and, and we're going to turn then and hear what uh, we can can draw in meaning for our lives today from this account in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 17 then, starting in, in verse 1. Uh, It's with great delight that we hit this passage for a very simple reason that I'll I'll explain later in the message. Um, Chapter 17 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, Abraham, that's the reason. I get to call him Abraham now. Um, I keep tripping over that. Uh, Abram will vanish and Abraham will be here. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to him, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation." 
But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are able to hear your words. And and sometimes the cultural implications or um, things that, 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 that the biblical author is discussing can seem alien to us in terms of, of their purpose or, or reason. And so we pray, Father, that, that we would have eyes to see what you say to us in your word. We pray, Lord, this morning for those who cannot hear your word. Uh, we think of the, the Ati people, 16,000 who are precious to you. And we pray that that you would send preachers among them, that you would send those to proclaim the gospel that they might believe. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to hear your word and to discern the promises and the goodness and the grace that's in your word. And then, Father, to hear the implications or the demands of it. And then to be changed in our hearts and to be shaped in our will that we might live in the way that you call us to. And we pray this, Father, in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We pray this in his name. Amen. It, uh, it's a struggle, I believe, for many Christians. Uh, and I, I believe it's a struggle to to, to believe the gospel, one of the, the rational difficulties that many have is that it is, it is hard to know which is the cause and which is the effect uh, when, it, when it comes to the grace of God and when it comes to obedience. Uh, we are born into the world basically non discerning, right? You know, most of us uh, have, have very little memory of our birth. I'm assuming nobody can say, oh, it was a, a rainy day. You know, the only reason that you know that is because your mom told you, right? Um, that, that's the only reason why you know any of the events about the day of your birth, because you don't remember. And so as we grow in conscious understanding, we, we think about our life, it's, it's hard to, to recall certain things. We, we learn that if, if we don't behave the way that we're supposed to, that we get punished, Right? And, and we, can, we can grow to, to, to think and to look at the, the world through the lens of if I don't behave, my, my relationship will be cut off. I can, I can ruin this relationship through, through misbehavior. Um, and so when we come to the gospel and we hear the, the news that, that there is no way that we can earn God's affection. That, 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 that we are sinners and that we're in a desperate state and that, that God has supplied all that we need and if we put our faith and trust in Christ and we'll be made righteous, we can struggle with that. We, we struggle to, to, to really believe and to rest in the fact 
that grace comes first and that, that faith answers grace, that faith is a response to grace. And, and it can be difficult for us to believe that, that, the, that the trouble that we're encountering in our life is the, the good of God to shape us and to grow us in holiness because, because we think, no, my relationship with God depends purely on my obedience. That's just a natural way of, of thinking. Think about it. This is the way that your, your work life functions, right? You, you clock in and you do your job, and if you fail to do your job, you will not be clocking in for very often, right? You will get fired. This is the way so often that marriages work and that, and that families work. You know, it, it is a responsibility in my house that you keep your room clean. And, and blessings which are extended to you, certain blessings don't get taken away. Food, right? Your bed don't get taken away. But the ability to go out and play might get taken away. You know, the ability to watch television might get taken away uh, if, you, if you don't follow through on your responsibilities. And so we tend to think that every relationship in the universe operates this way, even our relationship with God. And I think that even the best of us, even those who've got our theology, and I don't mean me, I just mean whoever you are, you've, you've, got, you've got great theology, your theology's finely tuned, we can... We can continually smuggle in this idea that, that the reason that life is going so well right now is that I'm being obedient, right? The reason that life is going poorly is because I failed here or, or there. And, and if I can just fix that, then everything will start working again. I think our passage that's in front of us this morning, though, will, will demonstrate that faith answers grace, and that faith is the response to grace. Faith manifests itself first as belief. Belief, which can be a struggle. Trusting God. Taking God at his word and saying, yes, I believe that. And then faith manifests itself as obedience, which also can be a struggle. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm firmly of this belief after walking with Christ for a number of years now that theology is the relatively easy part. Coming to, to a place where I say, God's word says this and I believe it. That's, that, that is not difficult in comparison to saying, I will now act in a way that's consistent with what I believe. Um, and it can be hard to come to some theological beliefs. It can be hard to believe certain things in the Bible and to say, wow, is that really true? Like even in the midst of, of my toughest experiences, do I believe it? Can I say God is good? That can be hard, but it's tremendously more difficult. It's a, it's a much greater struggle to then say, I will live and act like it's true all the time. That is so hard. So what do we see in our text before us? Uh, Abraham is 99 years old and the Lord appears to him and begins to speak to him. He announces uh, himself by his title, I am God Almighty. And he says, walk before me and be blameless that I make, make my covenant between me and you. If you were here and heard Genesis 15, you might be thinking, make my covenant again? Didn't we just do this in Genesis 15? Another covenant? What, what, what's going on here? Why, why are we doing this again? Think, though, back, if you just glance at, at Genesis 16, you'll see the name over and over again, Hagar, 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 Hagar. 
And, and remember that, that Abram and, and Sarah got off track. They, they allowed their, their reason and their thinking to dominate. They allowed practical, pragmatic thinking. How will we produce an heir? Go into Hagar and, and she'll conceive and, and that child will be our heir. And think about the sinful effects of, of that decision. Abram and, and, and Sarai, who will be renamed, and I'll no longer stumble over their names in the pulpit, although it's funny because I thought, I won't stumble anymore, and I, I stumbled in, in verse 9. Um, yeah, your name, yeah, anyway. Um, so, so maybe you'll, you'll have to endure me struggling over their names for, for more time. Abram and Sarai sinned, and they conspired to carry out God's plan in their own strength, and yet God was gracious, we saw last week, to Hagar. That he showed grace and kindness to her. And so when, when chapter 17 begins, the question that should be on our minds, if we've never read the story before, is, is have they blown up God's plan for their life? Have they, have they so ruined God's plan that, that now they've, they've destroyed the covenant? And, and, and there's no hope for them. I think there's good news and grace for us in this. Have you ever... Have you ever, has ever, an event ever happened in your life where you think, now I'm beyond the will of God. Now I've, now I've sinned in such a way that I am truly alienated. There is, there is no going back. You know, if, if you're, if you're, uh, I'm, Route 50 is in my mind here as I'm, I'm thinking about this. There are those, there are those places where, where if you, if you get on Route 50 and you miss the turn, you've then got to drive. It's like 10 miles till there's a turnaround. You know, you're just like, the road just seems endless until you, you get to the next place where you can turn. You think, oh, you know, I missed it. So do we, do we think about God's will that way ever? I have, I have gone past the point of no return and I've somehow ruined God's will for my life. The good news is that as long as we are conscious of our sin and failure, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts to drive us back to the Lord. We, we know the demands of God and we, 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 may, we look at his character and we think, I've not lived up to that. And, and the implications of that start crashing down on us and we think, am I too far from God? Have I, have I messed up too many times to, to repent? But the Holy Spirit is urging us, pressing on us and saying, you sinned, you sinned, you sinned. What, what does the scripture tell us to do? To repent and return to the Lord. We're never beyond God's will. We're never beyond the ability to go back. And I think that's one of the things that's taught here. Now, this does not mean that there's a second chance after death. The Bible says it's appointed for man once to die, and then comes judgment. And it doesn't mean that we should just flagrantly sin and say, I can, I can come back at any time. That's a complete misunderstanding of the nature of grace. But, but if you find yourself broken before the Lord and wondering, will God accept me? The answer is yes. He's merciful and gracious and kind and loving. And we ought not to continue to pile sin on ourselves and, to, and to, uh, to break that relationship. Instead, we ought to return to the Lord. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. I'm wondering if, if after, after his sin with Hagar and the, the division between he and Sarah and, and Hagar and the birth of Ishmael, <coughs> I wonder if he thought, will I ever see God again? Have I ruined the plan? 
But God appears and says, I am God Almighty. Did he think? And now comes judgment. Right? Now I'll be destroyed. Until the Lord says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you, between me and you. Think of the goodness of God. Moses on the mountain was told, well, he, he went up to the mountain after, after leading the people out and struggling with some difficulties along the way. There had been some, some, some sins and some encounters with the people and some, some grumbling and some rebellion and God had graciously delivered them. And Moses goes up on the mountain and, uh, and he says to the Lord, just as he's received the Ten Commandments, he says, show me your glory. Show me. I just want, I want to see you in all your glory. And, and God basically tells him, I'm far too glorious. And if I show you my glory in all its gloriousness, you'll, you'll melt. You know, your eyeballs will burn out. That's not what's actually in the Bible. But, but that's the implication of it. God says, show you my glory. No, no, no. Far too glorious. He says, but this is what I'll do. I'll, there's this special Moses place uh, Moses-shaped place in the rock, in the cleft of the rock, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick you up, and I'll put you there, and you'll stand there, and you'll turn your back to me, and I'll show, cause all my glory to pass before you, and as my glory's passing before you, I'll tell you when you can turn around, and you'll see the, the train of my robe, like the last little bits of my glory. You'll just see the, the last gloriousness of all my gloriousness, the most minimal gloriousness of my gloriousness. And so, and so Moses looks as, as God is passing by. And it says, as the Lord passed before him, this is what the Lord proclaims, right? This is, this is one of the, the high points of the Old Testament Exodus narrative. This is where Genesis, by the way, is going. It's, it's all crescendoing. It's going to crescendo here out in the wilderness. This is what the Lord says. He reveals his character, who he is. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, that's so good. But listen, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now you might say, wait a minute, that, that ruins everything. I loved it up until he started saying he would by no means clear the guilty, that, that he would show steadfast love. That sounds good. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And say, I love that. Love that. And then, and then the sting comes in the idea that he will by no means clear the guilty. But think about the character of God. Adam sins in the garden. What does God say to Adam? I'm still here. He, he comes and he looks for Adam. When Peter sins grievously against the Lord Jesus, denying him, cursing and saying, I do not know that man. And then the rooster crows and, and, and the implications of what he's done come crashing down on Peter. Jesus comes to him and says, feed my sheep. I'm still, I'm still here. I'm still here. Why? Because of the gospel. Because of, of the fact that we can be cleansed of our sins. It's not the act of repentance that cleanses us. It's the work of Jesus on the cross. It's, it's his 
life lived for us that, that gives us the righteousness that we need before God. It's his, it's his taking our sins upon himself on the cross that gives us the forgiveness that we need. But we can then come before the Lord and say, I have sinned, I have alienated myself from you. Save me, and God will save us. The guilty are the ones who say, I will live as I desire. I will, I will live with no respect to your law. I, I, will, I will refuse to obey. I will live my way, and you will be satisfied with whatever I choose to give you. He is merciful and gracious and slow to anger to those who are humble and who seek mercy, but he will visit the iniquity of those who sin on themselves. And so the Lord tells Abraham, I am still here. I am still here. I am still longing and desiring to work through you. And so he then gives Abram this command. He says, walk before me and be blameless. We might, we might think this means that, that he needs to be absolutely and utterly perfect before the Lord, but I think we would miss the point. The point is that after his sin in Genesis 16, the Lord appears again and reaffirms the relationship that they have. And he says, walk before me and be blameless. Bruce Waltke says that walking before the Lord and being blameless is to orient the entire life around God's presence, God's promises, and God's precepts. Knowing that, that God is ever present and can see us. Knowing that, that God has made certain promises to us and knowing that God has called us to walk in a particular way. Abraham would mess up and he'll mess up in, in big ways still. He'll sin in, in grievous, grievous ways just like he did in, in Genesis 16. But coming back to the Lord and repenting when confronted is the way to remain in fellowship. Faith answers grace. The grace of God is an ever-seeking, continuous presence in our lives. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and calls us to repent, and we are called to answer that grace with faith. We're called to, to answer that, that grace when it shows up in our lives. Now, the, the answer to God's grace is, first of all, belief, and second, obedience. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we can kind of get in on ground floor, easy grace by just believing and, and not obeying. They're, the two are connected. But the Lord does not expect absolute and perfect obedience from us as the test of entering into heaven. He does expect perfect righteousness out of us in order to get into heaven, but he gives us that in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. But because God's given us righteousness in Christ, that does not mean that we can live any way that we want. We ought to arrive at this secret place of the heart. That's, the, that's probably the, the best way that I can describe where, where we need to be spiritually. This place within our, our will, I believe that's what the heart is in the Bible, that, that our will is postured in, in this way that, we're, that we're, we're turning away from the world 
and the flesh and the devil, and we're turning towards the Lord, and our intent is to live for Him. Whether we, whether we fail or whether we succeed, that, that our will stays in this direction, and that when we catch ourselves turning, that we turn back. That we're, that we're using force, forcing our will to turn back to the Lord. That we arrive in a place where we say like the psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 57, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. That, that that's the intent of our will. Not the world is my portion. What, what, I can, what I can get for my flesh is my portion, right? What Satan tempts me to, that's the good stuff, and, and I have to keep your words. That's, that's not a heart that knows the grace of God. Psalm 142, verse 5 says this, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And when we, when we say that, when that's the, the, the setting that our heart is on, when we, when we turn towards the Lord, he says to us, I'm still here. I'm here. Abram's reaction is to fall on his face. It's funny. I said, I read that, and I think I heard somebody laugh over here, which is totally fine, because it's, it's funny to hear that Abram falls on his face. I think it's written that way on purpose. It's this, it's this reaction that when God appears, Abram is amazed that God is back, and amazed that God would make this covenant with him, and he falls down abruptly. And, and the reaction in his, in his heart is just one of humility and joy. He's humble. James 4.6 speaks of, of the attitude of the, the heart that, that God smiles on. James 4.6 says that God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, the one who comes to the Lord and says, I've believed in Jesus. I've, I've given money and I've done good things. Now let me into heaven. Misses the point. The one who says, I am a sinner and I deserve nothing but judgment and wreckage and torment for all eternity because I've sinned against you. But I am amazed that you'd show me grace thank you for that, understands salvation. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is the basis of the friendship between God and Abram, who will be Abraham. The basis of it is God's gracious work in Abraham's life and Abram's recognition that he deserves absolutely nothing. A proper sense of himself and a proper sense of God. Abraham is truly a man who knows his place. Now think about what we've learned about Abraham through, through our, our study and our, our, our work through these passages. This doesn't mean that Abraham can't ask questions of God. What, what am I going to do, he says in Genesis 15. You've given me no heir. How will I know that you're going to give me an heir? And God doesn't throw a lightning bolt at him and, and destroy him. Many times Christianity is characterized as, as something that, that, that we're told, believe this and ask no questions. And sometimes pastors and preachers and parents and Bible study leaders come off that way. Many times what they're doing, right, is hiding their own ignorance. They're like, don't ask that question because I don't know the answer right? I love, my, my heart leapt for joy. I was in Bible study with a pastor and he's like, that's a great question and I don't know what to say to you. 
but I'm going to find something out. And I was like, wow, this, this just was so encouraging. We're allowed to go to the Lord and to say, show me, explain this to me, help me. Now, we might not get answers to our questions. But God can take our questioning and our, our seeking to, to connect faith with understanding. It also doesn't mean that we can't mess up. Abram has messed up and he will mess up again. It means that in the end that Abram, Abraham remembers that God is God and that Abraham is dust. And he brings himself joyfully into alliance with God's purposes. He believes and then he obeys. And that is the hardest thing. The, the life of the believer, I believe, is going to be, the, the life of the believer who is on the right path is going to, to be aware of the difficulties and the challenges and the struggles that are going on in their own soul and is going to acknowledge, yes, I believe the promises of God and I commit to live that way and to realize that this is not going to be easy, it's going to be difficult and that the, the power of the Holy Spirit living within is going to be what, what makes it possible. I think that the name change is an illustration of, of this humility and this, this determination or this, this, uh, the, the fact that, that Abram is going to be moved into a life of complete and total dependence on the Lord. Abram means exalted father, right? It's a, it's a name which, which describes who Abram is. He's a respected landowner. He's a rich man. And, and he's, got, he's got a tremendous uh, uh, agriculture, not agricultural, uh, animal holding. You know, they respect him as this, this man who's got cattle and herds and influence. And he's a, he's a recognized warrior. He's an exalted father. People come and they, would, they, they, they bow themselves before him. But he has no children, which is the thing that he wants most. And as God is on the verge of giving this to him, he changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, something that will only come by God's grace. It comes as, as Abraham realizes that, that he has exhausted every avenue of, of receiving this inheritance and he cannot accomplish it on his own. It only comes through the enablement of God. It comes as he's humble and walks blamelessly before God. Do you desire to walk in a way that God will view as blameless? I, I, I fall into this trap of thinking after I confess my sins, and there are many, this is one of the reasons why I try never to say you, but I say we, because I know, I know that I have not arrived, but I get to this place in my heart where I think, I am done with this sin. I hate it. I'm never going to do it again. Ugh, what a, what a trap. And yet, I believe that we can say that we're going to walk blamelessly before God. And that means that, that when we sin, we confess and we repent. And we, we remove the blame from ourselves by confessing and receiving the grace of God. And, and we, we focus ourselves on God's promises and we keep his commands in in view, and we say, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight against the sin and the temptation that are coming at me. That's what it means to walk blamelessly, to, to walk in the light of the goodness of what Christ has given us, his righteousness and forgiveness. 
and setting our hearts to, to follow after God's will, knowing that it will be difficult. Verses 6 through 8, God describes the benefits of this covenant. He tells Abraham, I will keep my word. I'm going to secure this land for you. I'm going to give you children. The nation's going to be great, and kings are going to come from you. <clears throat> I think we see a principle that, that comes into greatest light in the life of Jesus. Man. I just looked at the clock and I'm like, wow. All right, this is not happening again today. I'm just going to kind of break this sermon right in half. Um, I already broke it in half, uh, but, but I'm going to break it in half. I'm going to break it in quarters. Um, anyway, uh, there's, there's a principle that, that, that really comes into sharp light in the New Testament. It's this idea of anxiety substitution. Do you, do you get stressed out about things? Do you get nervous about things? Do you, do you make lists, right, so that you won't worry? And then in the middle of the night, you wake up and you're like, what if I lose my list? You know? Um, I, you know? Th think about it. We worry about things. We worry about, about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, how, what we're going to wear, how we're going to retire. You're going to be, you're going to go, this is not a knock on football. This is a, a knock on, on, you know, just American consumerism. You're going to watch the game today and you're going to see all these commercials and it's going to be like, do you have enough money for retirement? You know, the answer is no, right? You're never going to have enough money. This is just the nature of, of what advertising is driving you to think, right? You're not cool enough because you drink Pepsi. If you don't drink Pepsi, you're not cool enough. Um, you know, you need to drink Coke. It's better. This is what they're going to gonna, they're gonna tell you. The world is designed to make us feel anxious and nervous. But God says, trust me with the big, heavy things. Do not be anxious, saying, Jesus says, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, these are the nations that, that don't know God, not the, not the covenant people of God, not the ones who depend on him. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I want your faith, Abraham, to answer my grace. I will show you grace and I want you to then say, I believe that and I'm going to be obedient in a way that's consistent to it. You want land? You can't get it. You want uh, 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 descendants? You can't get them unless I give them to you. So stop worrying about that stuff and walk before me blamelessly. Think about it. The Christian does not need to worry about all of the things that the world worries about. Why? Because God promises to be our God. We need to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. And all the things that we worry about will be added to us. God promises to be their God. And to follow and uh, to, 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 to allow them to follow in blessing all of their days. Okay, um, let me just kind of accelerate through some stuff here and then we're going we're gonna to close off uh, as, as we arrive at the end of, of what 
I believe that the Lord would have us see in this text this morning. Uh, verses 6 through 8 are the benefits. God is going to make kings come from Abraham, and there's going to be nations. Um, and then we see in verses 9 through 14 the stipulations. We're going to come back to this specific subject next week. You thought I was going to talk about circumcision on Super Bowl Sunday? No way. I'm going to kick this can as far down the road as I can. Uh, the pattern here in this text is that the promise is stated right? The promise is stated, and then there is something said about the law of circumcision, okay? Here, God states a promise to Abraham, and then he states the law of circumcision. What's going to happen next, in the next big section of the text, is he's going to speak about Sarah, and then we're going to see the law of circumcision instituted. That's the pattern of the text, what God is saying to them is, you are going to be a people marked by this practice. It's going to be a, a sign of, of the people of Abraham. We're going to talk about that next week. I'm done talking about circumcision. Uh, and we'll also talk about what the word everlasting means. Um, so, uh, God is saying to Abraham, you will answer your belief in my grace by this practice demonstrate that you understand what I'm saying to you and that you're committed to my way by enacting this sign. Demonstrate your inward faith by an outward sign. Now I want to point one thing out as we close. I got a bunch of applications that I make, but I'm just going to, I'm going to settle on this as, as we draw it to a close. Look at what it says in verse 15. And God said to Abraham. Look at what it says in verse 9. And God said to Abraham. There's, there's something, just consider this with me for a second, right? All throughout this text as we've looked at it, he's been Abram, right? Abram, the, the fallible human who has, who has messed up and who has sinned and who has failed. And, and they're still having this conversation. It says in verse 1 of the passage, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, and then God says to him, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. They're still having the conversation, right? Abram has not stopped talking to the Lord and gone and done anything in obedience yet. He's not obeyed. He's not, he's not put this practice of circumcision into effect. He's not, he's not fought off a temptation or, or you know, experienced some kind of, of triumphal victory in his life. He's still talking, and it says, and God said to Abraham, his identity has been changed. When? In the moment that God declares that his identity is changed. I love, I love that. God knows who Abraham is, even if it's not already in practice. Let me demonstrate the truth of this from the New Testament, okay? And we're going to close down. Paul says this, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I, just, I don't want you to think I'm just kind of building this idea out of nowhere. Um, God says this through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. God shows his grace to the Corinthians by giving them the gospel. They put their faith and trust in Christ. Their sins are forgiven because of Christ's work on the cross. They receive his righteousness and their sins are forgiven. 
I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Do you want peace with God? Trust the work of Christ on the cross and your, your sins will be canceled out and you'll be given righteousness. That's good news. So Paul says, I give thanks. And then he says this in verse 5. He says, I give thanks that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I want to point something out. These are the opening verses to 1 Corinthians. All right? What what, What God says through Paul, Paul thanks God for them because of the grace of God that was given to them, tangibly given to them. They are in the grace of God. They were enriched in him in all speech, not lacking in any gift. God would sustain them to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the Corinthians, the most sinful, disordered church in the entire New Testament. Okay? Now, if you're the the pastor of that church and you're reading this letter of Paul to your church, you might be thinking, Paul's just being nice to us because we're a wreck. Or he's thinking, yeah, of course we are. We're wonderful. We've got it all together when in fact they are truly and totally a wreck. Now, I speak as as pastor to the Harvest Baptians, not to the, the Corinthians. And I'm proud of my church. And I'm even prouder when I look at the Corinthian church. Okay? But think about this. Paul says these things, and then he's going to launch into a litany of all the things that they're doing wrong. Why? Because those things are not consistent with their identity, with who they are. They are enriched in every way. They are guiltless before the Lord. They are righteous. They have been given everything that they need and God will indeed sustain them because that's who they are even if they don't know it. You know what this means? This means that when we struggle in faith, this is who we are. When we struggle and we battle for holiness and righteousness, when our, when our hearts are set on the setting of, I'm going to follow God, God knows who we are and he has changed us. He's changed our name. Abram has done nothing and yet God calls him Abraham. You put your faith and trust in Christ and, and I, I believe that that, that is in a sense doing nothing. You've done nothing but receive what God's given to you. It can't even be called a work, I believe, according to Romans chapter 4, that that God gives grace to the one who doesn't work but who trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. I don't think that that belief can be counted as a work. We just say, we say, yes, I I want that righteousness credited to me. I'm going to fight in faith and believe that you're my portion and God stops calling us a sinner and starts calling us a saint. 
In the book of Revelation, it says that God's going to give us a, a white stone with a, a secret name written on it. Nobody knows your real name if you're a Christian. God's got a name for you that only he knows, and he, he stops calling you by that name that everyone knows, and he starts calling you by that secret name. Because you are right and justified before him. Now, let me just close on this application. Why? Why? If that's the way that God views us, would we ever willingly turn back to the world and to the flesh and to the devil and work for things that perish and work for, for priorities that just meet our own sinful demands and our own vain imaginings and turn away from the plan of God for us? Why would we not substitute in our heart as often as we realize that we're drifting, why would we not say to the Lord in Psalm 119 verse 57, the Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. Why would we not answer his grace with faith? Why would we not embrace the difficulty of obedience, which is the hardest thing when he has shown such grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus? Why would we not do that? Let's pursue the Lord, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. Why would we not throw off every weight and the sin which so, easy, which so, so frequently entangles and run the race with endurance? Why would we not do that? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your graciousness toward us. We thank you that you've shown kindness to sinners. Sinners who have sinned against an infinite majesty. There is, there is no way, given enough rags and enough cleaner and an infinite amount of time, there is no way that we could remove any of the stains of the sins that we've committed against you. Not even a single one. And yet, you give us grace and righteousness in Christ. We pray that, that seeing the, the depth of the goodness of your grace toward us, that we would turn from sin and that we would see you as the Lord, the Lord, abundant in compassion, infinite in mercy and grace, showing kindness to thousands and steadfast love. We pray that we would turn away from our sin and ourself and that we would embrace the hard work of obedience for your glory, knowing that you see us as righteous in Christ if we've put our faith and trust in him. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's, who's bearing the weight of their own sins, I pray that they would see the weakness of the scaffolding and they would see that it will give way and crush them infinitely and forever. But that they can put their faith and trust in Christ and be delivered from their sins in an instant. I pray that they would call upon you from an earnest heart and put their faith and trust in you that they might be saved. And we pray that those of us who've trusted in you, those, those who, have, who have started to begin to run the race, I pray that we would run that race with endurance and not turn back to disobedience, but that we would put our faith and trust in your grace all of our days. We thank you for your love. 
We thank you that you call us by a new name even before we've done a thing. We thank you for your mercy. Mercy given to those who don't deserve it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing this closing song together and then depart in peace.